0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Will Crane from PT Final Exam and Dr. Crane and I are going to be discussing different strategies and things that you can do to prepare for and learn from the major tests and exams that kind of pop up across the course of life and that can relate to academic pursuits or different tests that pop up in your day-to-day life and your career and so much more and I personally have benefited greatly from Dr. Crane's advice and his online courses. I've used his courses to help myself prepare for my board exam for my doctor of physical therapy and I am a huge fan of the way his team and he approaches everything, and I cannot recommend the PT final exam courses enough if you're someone who is going to be taking the NPTE exam. I think they do a great job preparing you for it, and I'm excited to work with Will today to kind of dive into different things to help you prepare for the exam, keep your mind right, manage stress, but also take the stuff that you learn in preparing for an exam and apply it to the day-to-day life that you create for yourself afterwards. I hope you enjoy this episode. Will, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man.
1: Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to finally connect. I know that it always takes a little bit to get these things scheduled and connected, but thank you. Appreciate you.
0: Yeah, and you know, I've listened to your voice for dozens and dozens of hours trying to prep for my board exam. And as we were talking, I successfully passed which I do accredit in part, at least, to you guys at uh, PT final exam, though. You guys do great work. For people who aren't familiar with you, your company, everything that you've been doing, would you mind filling them in a little bit about you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a physical therapist. I graduated 10 years ago, I guess 11 years now. 11 years ago, graduated. I continue to practice as a PT. And I started 10 years ago, I started PT final exam, an NPTE preparation company, really the goal was to to provide an awesome resource, make it very accessible for students. We've helped you know, many thousands of students get through the NPT. That's been kind of the, the shtick that we've had over a PT final exam for, for a long time now, but anyway, it's, it's something that's worked out well and obviously worked out for you. And I, I just say, congratulations. I think you did great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, as you were talking there, I realized the fact that you've done this for 10 years, and you've helped 1000s of people, you've seen a lot of student success stories. And you've probably seen some that they put in the time they put in the work. And unfortunately, they didn't quite make it through. What have you learned from working with, you know, physical therapy students as they approach what is, you know, the most important exam for them, the one that determines if they get their license or not? What have you learned about their like habits and i'll say just overall strategies that they've used to be successful when passing that exam
1: yeah so it's it's interesting you know there's a lot in that question about considering you know number one what what are the attributes of a successful student and then two what uh, flip side of that are there such things as unsuccessful students and what are those attributes so starting maybe first with what leads to a successful attempt on the exam and really this is for I think these are generally applicable, applicable principles that can go through, you know, so many areas of our life. But the the attributes of, of someone who is very successful, and by very successful, I'm talking about someone who who ach- sets a goal and achieves it, sets a goal and achieves it. Those who are successful are the ones that that tend to understand the road. Kind of again, this is hearkening back to Stephen R. Covey and talking about seeing the end from the beginning. Uh, lately, I've been talking to students about how you love the results of your efforts, but you don't always love the process of getting there. This is a little bit of the, you know, you're running a marathon. You're happy to have run the, supposedly you're happy to have run the marathon, but maybe you don't feel like it's the wisest or not even the wisest. Maybe it's not the most comfortable thing while you're in the middle of the marathon or uh, in your, in your back to the studying process, when you are in the middle of the study process, you may find that you're not, loving every moment of it. Maybe you wish you were doing something else. Maybe you're bored with it, but you do love the results that will come. This is namely a career in physical therapy. This is not the least of which a cash positive income (laughs) versus outgo. Uh, And then as we we mentioned a moment ago, to be able to have an influence on your patients and your patients' lives, there's a lot of very good and noble things about what you are doing as you prepare for a, a major exam like that. So I guess the successful students are the ones that see why they're doing it. And then they put in the requisite time and effort to make it actually happen. And this usually boils down to adequate time. Combine that with adequate effort. So time, obviously time and effort, you got to have that. But the ones, and so I guess to paint the opposite picture here, the, the ones who typically are unsuccessful are the ones who either their effort is kind of unwise efforts if you can say that so for instance i've had people who say hey well you know i read o'sullivan cover to cover and i still failed the test what went wrong it's like well you know granted you did put in some effort but did any of it actually stick into long-term memory are you using this are you problem solving with this content rather than just seeing it or recognizing it because you know frankly as we go through our educational experience so many times our exams are really about recognition and being able to kind of spit out what the professor told you two weeks ago. It's like, okay, yeah, we, we've learned and been conditioned to that, but a test like the NPT, it's a three-year test. You know, clearly there's such a wide scope of material. Anyway, it requires more than just seeing and recognizing it requires actual problem solving with the content. So, and then, right. And then the other thing would be time, adequate time. You just, you have to put in a sufficient quantity of time to make it work. And my general recommendation is somewhere around two to four hours, most weeks, and just, or sorry, most days, two to four hours, most days for most days of the week. And that usually multiplies quite well.
0: Yeah, I like that. And as you were talking, I was actually having flashbacks in my mind. I'm like, this sounds a lot like that fit principle from like ACSM here, frequency. How often are you studying? intensity. Are you focused and putting in good time, good hours studying? Or is it kind of like wasted time, you know, TV on in the background, music on that kind of stuff. Yep. I get yep. some yep. people can study with that, but it's probably not as effective. Uh Overall time spent studying and then the type of studying, you know, one of the things I like to do was go for walks and listen to podcasts After I was done reading or reviewing a PowerPoint or lecture series is I'd just throw the podcast on and go for a walk and listen to some stuff. So it was a different type of learning and it was a a way to get up and move around, just kind of break up the monotony of sitting down. And I like how you compared it to a marathon as well, because there's going to be a time in that study grind that you feel like you start to hit a wall. And if you've ever run a marathon, you hit a wall in the marathon. And you essentially just have to push through and keep going. And the repetition of continuing to move forward, continuing to move forward is going to drive success when you do go and take the exam, or at least it will hopefully drive success. You know, if you're, I'll I'll use another fitness analogy while we're going on this train. Uh, If you go to the gym and you do an exercise one time, and then you come back in three months, and you check to see how strong you are at it, You probably didn't get much better. But if over the course of two to three months, you do that exercise multiple times per week, and you repeat it, and you progressively increase in how much you do with it, you'll probably get a lot stronger at it. So then when you go back to test it, you'll be far better than you were when you first initially started.
1: Oh, I agree. Overload principle, you've just got to, I mean, Wolf's Law, you name it. There's there's a couple of great analogs here about therapy, exercise, and how to prepare for a stressful event or some, in this case, you know, I specialize in the NPT, but it, it would be broadly applicable to really any major exam or standardized exam.
0: Right, right. And as you mentioned, there can be some stress when you have something big like that. I certainly felt stress going through school. I shared uh on a podcast recently, I failed two of my first exams in PT school, which is never the way you want to start your journey. Um yeah, and nice even stuff. going into even going into uh boards like I was a little bit uneasy because I'm like You know, I I see the pass rate for the board's first time and I see the pass rate for my school and I know I put in the time, I know I put in the hours, but there's still like that what if chance. And I know that I felt that throughout school. I felt that going into the NPTE. And I think that the whole stress and mental role of the exam can be just as uh, trying, I'll say, as the overall preparation that you put in. Have you given any like strategies to help with the mental side of the exam to people? Or is there any advice that you usually give to the students who work with you uh, through your uh, PT final exam program?
1: Yeah, so I usually pull a page out of the sports psychologist handbook where they the idea with sports psychology is that almost always there's some event you're working up towards. You know, think about football. You're working up towards some you know, major game or playoff or Super Bowl, you name it, this could be obviously applicable to really any sport or sporting event. But there is a specific event that you're working towards. And there can be a lot of anxiety working towards that thing. And so as far as how to reduce anxiety, it's and really, that's important to remember, this is anxiety reduction, not elimination. It's tough to totally eliminate it, especially when you consider that the stakes that are on the line and we're talking about high stakes type events, whether it's tests or sporting events. In any case, when it comes to sports psychology, the key is identifying what you can control and controlling that well. And so this is hearkening back to like Nick Saban and Alabama talking about do every play, do the next play perfectly. So this is talking football plays, do the next play perfectly. And you just keep adding up this aggregation of, of small, perfect plays to make the best outcome possible. And so this is back to the studying example. When it comes to studying, how can you make this next study session a quote-unquote perfect study session? So you are in control of the quantity of time, you're in control of the content you'll be studying, you're in control of the method. And typically, when you are in control, you feel less anxiety. And so it's, It's all about identifying and staying in control of the things that are in your control on test day. You don't have control of, and this would be, again, you could generalize this principle to sporting events. You can't, you can't control the weather. You can't control what the other team does. You can't control a number of things or you can't control what questions they ask you, but you can again, back to what you can control. You control your preparation, your time, your strategies there. And when you are in control, you feel less anxiety. And that tends to be the general trend here. So try to control what you can.
0: I like the focus on what you can control. And I remember when I went into the test day there, I was trying to control everything I could. But there are some things that although I wanted to control I couldn't. So I wanted to be smiling on my picture that they take uh, for your exam ID, and they didn't allow smiles. I wanted to go in happy and I wanted to come out happy. But Unfortunately I couldn't do that. Um but during the exam I tried to, you know, keep a good smile, keep a good face, keep a good posture and keep a good attitude. And I know that some people might say, well, you know, that doesn't that's not enough to make or break the whole exam. And you know, as far as like content recollection, sure. You know, me sitting like this upright, nice, good posture versus like this slumped forward, it might not necessarily give me any additional information. But if it gives me a little bit more confidence and it gives me a little bit more just overall calmness through my body instead of just stress and anxiety and shaking around a little bit during the exam, then I'll probably perform better. I think in general, I found that I've performed best when I'm familiar with a situation. So when I go into, say, a PT evaluation for that matter, I definitely feel better when I know, Okay, well, I've seen like you know, a hundred patients with an knee problem before, instead of just, Hey, this is the first patient I've ever seen with this. It's, it puts you a little bit more uneasy and on edge when it's your first time. And I think that again, at least speaking from my experience um, it helped to kind of feel familiar with things like I've done the practice exams. I put my time in and just being able to continue to repeat those things to myself over and over again, because you know, you might get a question or two that throws you off and it's very easy to get lost or uh, fall off track, I'll say, when you're in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I, I remember very well my first few knee
1: and back and hip exams. You know, I was, we'll just say, controlled terror. Like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what? how can I remember every little thing that I'm supposed to have been trained on this, but I haven't practiced a lot. But then compare that to... To down the road, like, I think it took, I'm trying to remember, it was about six months, six to 12 months of, of pretty steady practice, you know, full time caseload. It was about then that I stopped seeing, quote unquote, new things, everything started to be a repeat of things I'd formerly seen, like, you know, there's only, I mean, you can have a number of flavors of knee pain and pathologies of of any kind, but really, they all kind of start boiling down to okay—is this meniscus issues, is this ligament issues, is this a major trauma issues, is this a surgical issue, and anyway, I guess the point is that that practice that—that's what leads to familiarity, which then makes it routine and reduces anxiety. So again, back to the anxiety reduction. This is why you practice, especially practicing in. Controlled environments can, and this is what when you're preparing for a big exam, one of the best evidence based strategies for exam prep is low stakes quizzing. Low stakes quizzing, because in a sense, you are practicing how you will respond when questions come your way. So you're just practicing, practicing, practicing. But I would then take that one step. What is it? It's not that practice makes perfect, it's perfect practice makes perfect, right? So you're trying to have good quality practice not just not just a quantity of practice so it's back to again back to good quality good quantity yeah i think we all know this intrinsically but it's it's back to making that act that active planning process you're saying to yourself okay how will i do the next thing really well
0: yeah and if you are going to make a mistake hey make it one you're taking one of those practice questions that doesn't really matter yeah. in the long term long run because well I got a few practice questions wrong, believe it or not. And I uh, remember going into the exam and being like, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen a familiar question before, and I don't want to give any details about that because I know the NPTE protects the privacy. But I will say practice questions help, and it helps when you get one wrong, but then come back to it and you feel a little bit more confident of, hey, I've made this mistake before. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. You learn from the mistake that you previously made, right?
1: Well, see, that's where you and I differ. You see, I've never gotten a question wrong. I've gotten every... <laughs> no. You're just oh, perfect. <laughs> the number of questions I've gotten wrong over the over the years. Oh my goodness, the number of questions! But that's the thing. You just learn from your mistakes and say, okay, I'm not going to make that one again. Not going to make that one again. And before you know it, you've aggregated all these things where you will not just not get it wrong or what is it not just get
0: it right, but know it so well, you can't get it wrong. Right. You mentioned before too, about in clinical practice, it took you six to 12 months to feel confident with things like knees and backs and that sort of thing. Would you say you went through a similar learning curve when you started the PT final exam? I know at this point you've done it for 10 years. You're probably pretty familiar with the system. You've seen a lot of different students with a lot of different problems and issues, and you've kind of helped them work through a lot of them from what I understand. But at some point you had to start at it and it was first time and novice and all that.
1: Well, yeah, I, I suppose that's my superpower is that I can, you know, find find my mistakes pretty quickly, fail fast, uh, so to speak. But um, yeah, it's it has definitely been a a slow aggregation over time of, and I I like to think that I started with a good foundation. But you know, the number of times I've had people say, "Well, like just in fact, just before we went live, there was a a question I was just answering from a student about somatagnosia, somatagnosia, which is the inability, to, the perceptual deficit." after a stroke where you cannot recognize your own body parts. So usually we're talking about a stroke, where, let's say you have right-sided hemiplegia, that right-sided hemiplegia, you not just can't use the arm, but you look over and you wonder whose arm that is that's attached to you. Like there's just this, this total disconnect or perceptual de- deficit related to your own body parts or the, the awareness and relation of your body to the rest of your body. Anyway, so yeah, this uh, student just a moment ago was quizzing me on. Now, will is somatagnosia? Is that a a perceptual deficit associated with the dominant hemisphere or the non-dominant hemisphere? Like, well, I can have to go look that one up. <laughs> so we, we did, which, frankly, O'Sullivan actually says both things. It says it's on the non-dominant hemisphere and on the dominant hemisphere, but it tends. It seems like the the more likely case, or the more consensus would be. The dominant handed hemisphere, which means the left hemisphere associated with your right hand. So anyway, that to say that yeah, I, I have found a number of of number of areas where I can continue to improve. But again, that leads to a, a better being a better instructor is not knowing all the answers necessarily, but but being able to learn and then to transmit all that content to someone else.
0: Right, right. As you were talking about that, I realized, um, as we were talking earlier, I'm not really a neuro guy. So when you brought that up, I was kind of searching in my brain. I'm like, wait a second. I've heard this before, but what is that again? Um, And as we were talking earlier, I am not a very passionate studier of neuro materials. I felt like when I was in school, I really had to like, it was like dragging nails across the chalkboard to try and get me to actually study neuro. Like I could come up with anything else that I would want to do. Thankfully, I work more sports orthopedic right now. um, And neuro is just not my cup of tea. But I know I'm not alone in that. I know I've met some people who You know, ortho is their thing and neuro is not. Or there's other people who inpatient rehab, acute care type stuff is their bread and butter. But if you try and get them to study manual therapy, then forget it. They're not interested. Do you have any strategies or advice that you give to people who, you know, they have to study a certain content or course or material, but they really just don't want to do it or don't like it or aren't passionate about that specific topic?
1: Well, I mean, you gut it out in so many cases. You're like, okay, I don't love this. Again, this is back to loving the results, not necessarily the process. Uh, maybe just speaking, I because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had the, a very similar experience with neuro. I just felt like it was, I felt like it was all over the place. I felt like it wasn't tidy. It wasn't. Yeah. And this is, I discovered this, you know, after I I've, I've been married for a few years. My wife, she's very artistic. She, you know, not just not just kind of artsy, like she can produce fine art and she can tell you why. like, she took a number of classes, like not only does she have the skill, but she has the knowledge to back up that skill. And what I, but the thing is, and she's extremely intelligent, but she doesn't love math. She's always, not that she's terrible at math, but math and physics are just kind of like, you know, I I don't really care for it. And it wasn't until, you know, we've been married for a little while that I discovered that The reason she liked art, and I think this is the same for people who like Neuro, so this is my analog here. The reason she likes art is because it has almost a flowing, not really one exact answer type of a, like if you're going to draw a picture of a mountain, there's lots of, there's impressionist ways you can do a, again, I'm speaking way out over my skis here, but, <laughs> but you could do a concrete kind of view of the mountain. You could do an impressionist view of the mountain. You can do, I mean, you could draw it all, you know, an inverse color mountain. I mean, there's all kinds of ways and none of them would be wrong. Whereas if you're doing, say, like a math problem, you're doing calculus, you're trying to, to calculate the derivatives or the the integrals of whatever function there is a specific, very tidy answer that comes to comes to you at the end of that. So my analog here is sports therapy, orthopedic therapy, musculoskeletal generally, I feel like it's very tidy, okay? They're, you know, kind of input. We have hip pain uh, in the acetabular, the femoroacetabular joints, especially with the fader test, flexion, adduction, internal rotation, okay? That's the input. The output says, okay, this is very clearly gonna be some either femoroacetabular impingement syndrome, or labral tear, and you can kind of have this input-output. I feel like it's very tidy. And then you carry that on to the next step, not necessarily cookbook, but you take it to the next step where you say, okay, here are the impairments. I found what's wrong. Now I can clearly fix it. There's kind of that (laughs) input-output. Whereas with neuro, just as we described, so somatagnosia, as we described, which is the perceptual deficit of your, usually associated with your dominant hemisphere, it can also be associated with your non-dominant hemisphere. There's kind of this fuzzy line. And then the next question is okay, so now you've got somatic nose, you've got this perceptual deficit. What in the world do you do about that? Okay, well, you could, you know, work on trying to pay attention to the to the other opposite midline of your body, or you know, cross midline of the body. Try to work on sensory input on that side. Like you can see what I'm going for. There's you could do bobath techniques, rude techniques, you could do you know, manual therapy intervention, PNF. I mean, you name it. There's about 15 different ways you could go and none of them would be wrong. So therefore, back to the, the analogy of, of either tidy input-output boxes versus... And yeah, anyway, I, I could talk a little bit about boxes in the brain, but some of us really like to have things in nice, tidy boxes. And then others of us really enjoy the creative creativity and the flow. And I feel like that's where the division between... Those who love neuro and those who love ortho comes in and then there's all kinds in the middle and there's some who are very good at both. So I don't want to discount that, but <laughs> I, I see the differences there.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's not to say you can't get creative with the orthopedic realm because well, right, you know right. I think that some people are really good at picking up someone's impairments, and then actually getting unique with what they do intervention wise to match it more towards, you know, a specific sport or a specific activity that the patient wants to get back to. But I definitely think there's a difference in creativity with something like an activity that you can see you can do it yourself, versus creativity that relates to how the brain functions, how our body functions from a neurologic level because, you know, I can show you joint mechanics. I do the thing with my hands for all the different oh, yeah. joints all yeah. the time. Uh, But I can't really see your display, you know, the same model for how the brain works with different things and different motor recruitment patterns and all that sort of thing. That's just not really my wheelhouse. And, you know, like you said, it might be a certain side of the brain or a certain type of person that has that more creativity, creative, abstract thinking uh, that can really wrap their heads around that more. Uh, And as you were talking about what describes an orthopedic, uh, what typically describes someone who likes the ortho route, I was just like, yeah, that kind of sounds like me. I like a system of doing things. And I like when things add up. So you mentioned fader test. Well, it's nice when a fader is positive and they have hip pain, but it's even better when fader is positive and faber, flexion, abduction, external rotation is positive for hip pain and scour test is positive and resisted hip flexion or log roll. It's nice when just everything adds up and all the puzzle pieces fit together. There's a process, there's a system. And once you have that kind of end result, then you kind of have a path that you go from there. And as you mentioned, neuro, the sky is really the limit. I've seen people uh, work with Parkinson's patients before, patients with Parkinson's disease, and they've done different step training things uh, with steps. They've done high intensity interval training. I've also seen LSVT-BIG. And they're all very different approaches and they all work. Not one of them is wrong. It's just they use slightly different things. And I think that, um, again, maybe as I was talking about the ortho, maybe the same is true for neuro. So finding what works best for the patient, individualizing it to them, individualizing it to their own interests and passions. Um, But I feel like I don't have enough knowledge and experience in that wheelhouse to really speak on that much myself. Well that's I
1: feel like that's what separates we'll say the good therapists from the the great therapists. The great therapists are the ones who can customize customize and not just cookbook and you know I think all of us have the potential to be great really great clinicians when you consider all, consider all of your input factors and then make decisions about that rather than just you know go through you know, I don't know so all of us have seen kind of the classic example is in a PT that's in the very advanced stages of a career. They're just chugging out the time before they can retire. And, you know, they'll do the same three exercises on everybody every time without question. You're like, okay, you know, where, where's the creativity here? Like, where, how can we customize this and make it a better fit for the patient? So I, I agree with you there. There's, there's certainly that those are the great therapists, the ones that that hone their skill and make it very applicable to the current case that they're working on.
0: I think it makes physical therapy more enjoyable, not just for the patient, but also the therapist too, because, you know, the last thing I would want to do is go into work and just do the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Like you can have a monkey do the same task repeatedly. I want to be able to think critically and think outside the box and try new things. And I think that if you can do that, it kind of ignites like a passion or a fire within yourself that sets you up for more of a successful career long term. Not to say you wouldn't have a successful career if you didn't do it, but I think that you'll get a lot more reward out of your work if you are fired up to go into work each day. You think a little bit differently each day. You see something new and you try it. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You kind of learn from the mistakes as we talked earlier
1: right don't tell your patients you're making mistakes no well of course (laughs) (laughs) but that's why we call it practice right PT practice yeah and I mean that's
0: you you look back and at one point we thought continuous passive range of motion machines were the next big thing and now I don't think you'll find one in a clinic anywhere so it's yeah I haven't seen one in ages (laughs) it's one of those things like do they even mention that in school anymore um so it's okay to change the way that you treat over time, but that doesn't mean that the way you used to treat was wrong because maybe it was the best we had at the time.
1: All right. It's just that continual, just that continual practice. You're trying to find what works best. And that's that evidence-based practice kicks in. Uh, not only as time goes on, we see better, better, better evidence for whatever thing it is, but we also improve our our skill set also grows too. And so you can see how that would create this evolution. Ideally, you know, working towards having a a better patient outcome, better patient experience, and a, a good therapist experience too. You're trying to take care of all the the stakeholders in the the payer, the thi- payer, the physical therapist, and the patient are all the stakeholders. You want to make sure that they're all you're doing the best, all things considered.
0: Right, right. I like how you kind of broke down who the stakeholders were there because the physical therapist is kind of our target target with this audience, uh, this podcast, I'll say. And a lot of the physical therapists, they go through school. School is a stakeholder. The physical therapist once was a stakeholder who was paying in a substantial amount of money to get their degree. And now they're going to take that education and apply it. And when I was going through school, I learned very quickly that school doesn't teach you everything. And there's some things that they cover really well. And there's some things that we didn't ever really discuss. And you kind of got thrown into clinicals or you got thrown into the clinical practice or boards review and you kind of had to teach yourself those things. Have you noticed that there's been any certain trend of things that schools kind of skip out on or omit? in their programs that you end up filling in for students in preparation for the exam? Or have you noticed that um, students have come to you and said like, hey, you know, I didn't hear about this in school. I didn't hear about this in, you know, the prep course. But now that I'm practicing, I've been hearing more and more about this certain thing.
1: I don't know if there's any one thing specifically. I mean, I've unfortunately, I've talked to a few students who've had university experiences where I mean, we'll chalk it up to just either inadequate or poor instruction. And especially in the Zoom era. Yeah, because, <laughs> and you went through that where you had yep. to, to do basically half PT or maybe even all of PT school online. But the the ones that always puzzle me a little bit, I, I see why they're doing it, but I don't understand the exact how is the case-based learning where like legit and maybe your university was like this so I don't don't want to dog on your university but <laughs> but some universities what they do is they have classes where they the instructor just basically assigns readings of of clinical cases say here's a clinical case you five people do your research figure out what's wrong how to fix it and then come back and report to the class and in a sense those five people have to do all the work of finding the thing and teach and then teach the rest of the class about it. And then obviously there's other groups of five, but they've, and the professor basically is just there for questions. Like, oh, do you have any questions today? Oh, okay, well, you know, I guess not. So here we go, we're out early. And what I've discovered, this is again, very personal to me. I usually don't think of the questions in time. Like I, I haven't even thought of what questions I should have asked until I'm in a, in a situation where a person is telling me something And then I'm with someone else and someone else asks a question and then like, well, dang, that's a fabulous question. I'm so glad you asked it. And I'm sad. I didn't think of it. So I could have asked that question. And anyway, you put in the more ideal setting would be certainly you want to have people learn and do cases and and learn to problem problem solve on their own. However, you've got to have that instructional component too. And this is where You know, as far as, you know, class experience, like for instance, a silly little thing, the Borg rating of perceived exertion scale, the Borg RPE scale, six to 20. I always wondered why it was such a goofy scale goes from six to 20. And maybe again, maybe you have the same experience, maybe you don't, but it wasn't until I was out of PT school and actually practicing before I finally discovered six to 20, it correlates to heart rate six times 10 is 60. That's your resting heart rate. 20 times 10 is 200. So the idea with the Borg RP scale is that it would correlate, have some correlation to heart rate. And I feel like in so many cases, and the number of students I've told that, and they just have this light bulb moment, like, whoa, there's a reason for that? Again, it's back to having good instruction, someone who will kind of show you the ropes and tell you, this is the why. This is why they have this goofy scale from 6 to 20. It's because correlated heart rate. Anyway, just as, as a silly example there, but there's numerous cases like that where Either they never learned it, no one ever told them. And that's, again, where I get to have all the fun of giving them these
0: aha moments. Like, oh, that's why. That's why (laughs) we did that thing. Yeah, for sure. I love that analogy and that example specifically. Um, My school, I was fortunate enough to have what I thought was a pretty decent program of, there was a lot of lecture-based material. So a professor actually presenting and teaching the course material. But a majority of our classes had either a lab component, a hands-on component built in. And if they didn't, then the professors almost always found time to get a hands-on component. So there'd be like one or two days where the lecture was cut shorter and we would do more time learning through the case type stuff. But the thing is the cases was all based on material that they had just presented maybe the previous week. So it wasn't necessarily a self-taught approach of you do the reading then you just come into class do the case and then you leave it was more of we're going to teach it to you and then we're going to see if you can apply it and I actually noticed something similar when I went through your course is you did uh, a lot of content review during the week and then on the weekends you would do uh, practice questions and recall type stuff so it was a period of learning and then a period of applying it and I found that that approach tends to work very well for me. And I would imagine it works pretty well for other people too, based on uh, you know your own results and the results of other people that I've seen um, and worked with in the past is just being able to learn something and then do it, learn it and then apply it instead of just learn it and then learn it again, learn it again, learn it again, and not apply it until you know the big day per se.
1: Yeah, agreed. That's, again... I I totally concur. That's the way I prefer to learn, and I feel like that's the most evidence based way to learn. Is where you have co- content instruction, content retention, and then follow that up with low stakes quizzing, and that's where you see the best best improvements in long term
0: memory, and then subsequently problem solving on exam day. Right. And as you've as we've been talking, you know, you've mentioned evidence-based learning and a lot of different tips and tricks. One of the things I also liked about your program is uh, I think it was Mark specifically has the TikTok channel, and he posts these different videos on like you know neurological type uh, conditions or neuro type lessons, but they're literally like a minute, minute and a half long TikTok, and I thought that was the coolest thing because. I mean, how often do we find ourselves just kind of mindlessly scrolling? And it's like, next thing you know, we find something that like catches our eye and we watch the whole thing and we actually learn from it. And I kind of think that there's a strong path forward for learning that kind of feels more like entertainment, I'll say, or education that's more engaging, interactive, and just gets more of, I guess I'll use the neurotransmitter here, the um, physiological terms. Uh, gets more of that dopamine release, that feel good kind of uh, thing internally instead of just, wow, I really hate sitting through a three-hour lecture today.
1: No, I agree. Yeah, game-based learning, uh, quiz-based learning, all those are way better than just way better than just sit and hope to absorb it type learning. So that's why I'll, I'll bet you you know, in all your listeners too, but I'll bet you your favorite instructors, if you were to think back to the characteristics of your favorite instructors over time, they'd be ones that taught you, certainly they taught you, but you didn't feel like you were being lectured at. You'd be problem solving together, or they'd tell you the why, and then they would ask you a question about it, or they, they would do things that would make you thoughtful about the material rather than just hateful about the material like oh, i hate this why are we doing this rather they would do something that would be would be enjoyable and so whether that's you know silly examples funny acronyms goofy myotome dances i mean you name it there's a way to make it stick that's not just bland and unflavorful again your favorite instructors are ones that probably put a little flavor into it or told you a corny joke about the the thing you're you're trying to memorize so that
0: so that it sticks better. So yeah, yeah that, connect, I, I really believe in that. Connecting what you don't know to what you do know. Like I guarantee you, even a third grader could show you a good basketball shot, but not everyone could take a basketball shot and realize, hey, this is a great way to get the entire upper extremity myotomes in one motion and then make a right. video about it. So again, I give you guys a lot of credit for what you do because- I picked up a lot of little things from you. And uh, I use those analogies with my patients a lot lately. Well, yeah, that's, that's because it works. It's simple, simple, and it works. So that's what we like to do. Yeah, for sure. Why overcomplicate things, right? I, uh, I believe it's Occam's razor basically says that, you know, the true expert in life is not someone who takes something difficult and makes it even more impossible, but someone who takes the difficult to understand things and simplifies it to a point that anyone could understand it. Yeah, I totally agree. That's
1: yeah, that that's critical to do, especially as you're studying for a big test. You need to need to be able to, to not just understand the material, but be able to spit it out in your own words in not even in layman's terms, but just have it, have it be a schema in your mind of where it fits. And some people call this the mind palace. Some people call these schemas, but the idea is that you have this, this working knowledge that you can then manipulate and problem solve with rather than just see and recognize.
0: Are you a memory palace guy yourself? Is that how you no. keep track of everything? No, I'm more of a schema. I like to relate things, very relating. And that's
1: it doesn't always work very well. You know, one of the the silly little examples is like if you meet someone new and you want to memorize their name, you think of someone you know that's already someone you already know that has that name and think of them like linked arms or one arm around the other. And that's, again, kind of an association memory technique. And I I guess I ascribe to things like that. I try to associate things like, oh, that's like, for instance, sens- sensitivity and specificity when it comes to research and evidence-based practice. I always think of sensitivity as the TSA airport screening. That is a perfect example of sensitivity where they want to catch all the bad guys, but by so doing, they set off the alarm a little bit too often. And so in a sense, you have lots of false positives, but everyone who gets through the test without setting off the alarms, you're very confident they are true negatives. And so that's why with a sensitive test, if it comes back negative, you can rule out the condition. That's a highly sensitive test. So again, just an association that I have in my mind.
0: Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Will, this has been a great episode, and we've touched on so many great points as it relates to physical therapy school, the NPTE exam, and the life after physical therapy, because there is a, or the life after the physical therapy exam, because while the exam can seem daunting, there is a brighter side on the other uh, end of it, I'll say. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything that you want people to kind of take away as it relates to the preparation for their exam and anything that they can do to help them kind of prepare for it and keep their mind right?
1: I don't know. There's lots of lots of little thoughts, I suppose, but just trying to summarize it down into the things that are typically the most worth doing are usually the things that are the most difficult to do. Another example would be climbing a mountain. I think all of us have seen pictures of mountains. We've all considered being on top of a mountain, but there's nothing quite like actually climbing to the top, standing there on the top of the world and saying, hey, I did it. I made it to the top. So that's why, you know, such a great example there. But the point is that it's usually, what is it? The saying goes, people who are on the top of mountains didn't fall there. (laughs) Something like that. And maybe I'm messing that up. But the things that are worth doing are typically the most difficult things. And that goes for our our whole careers as PTs. uh, As we described, the great therapists are the ones that hone their skills and learn and apply. And then back back to the NPT itself. I like to think that the NPTE does not define you, it only refines you. So it only refines you, doesn't define you. Point being that it is a difficult, painful process. But again, as we said at the very beginning, it's a sort of a thing where you love the results, you love the career that comes after. And so that's what helps drive you to to perform the practice and the input that goes into that, is that it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, So now let's just make the next practice session the best one.
0: I love it. And, you know, in the moment when you're in those practice sessions, it might start to get difficult, but take it from someone who's been there and made it to the other side. It is 100% worth it. And as I've already mentioned, I went through your course, Will, and I'm a huge fan. But for people who want to check it out for themselves, maybe even find your YouTube channel, all that sort of thing, where can they find out more about the PT final exam? So easiest place is
1: ptfinalexam.com. You can follow us over on Facebook, on YouTube. You mentioned some TikTok. We've got some over there, Instagram. But really, yeah, anywhere. I would also recommend the NPTE podcast. That's one that I do. So if you want to check out some podcast episodes, you can just search for the NPTE podcast by PT Final Exam. So
0: Yeah, we'll link to all of that below in case you didn't quite catch it. So you can just click there. And Will, if anyone wants to reach out to you personally, uh, is there a way to get a hold of you on Instagram or anything like that? Yeah, just go over to ptfinalexam.com slash
1: contact, hit that contact tab, and I see that. So that'll, that'll come, come to me. Anyway, if, if, you've got to, if you want to reach out directly, that's the best way.
0: Perfect. Will, thank you again for your time, man. I really appreciate it. It was awesome talking with you today. Yeah, truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.